Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles now and open them to the Old Testament today, to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. We're in the midst of a five-week series called, What is the Gospel? And our stated objective, week one, is that every member of First Baptist Keller would be able to clearly articulate the saving message of Jesus Christ to anyone who would ask them. And to help in that goal, we're walking through four sub-questions of what is the gospel uh, developed by Greg Gilbert in his little book by the same name. And don't forget, you're going to be receiving a copy of this little book at the end of this series. And also, uh, Brother Lawrence Duhon, our Associate Pastor of Missions and Evangelism, is developing some activities through the spring and summer months to help us to put these things into practice. So it's not just that we want you to pass a test on evangelism. We want you to do evangelism as you go about your day. So Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Now the first question we started with last week was, to whom does humanity owe accountability? Now many people in our culture, if you'd ask them, to whom do you owe accountability, they'd say no one. Because they view themselves as the captain of their own ship, the master of their own destiny. And they don't like the notion that anyone has anything on them that they have to be accountable for. But God has revealed himself in the Bible in places like Exodus 34 we saw last week, where he makes certain claims upon humanity. He reveals who he is and his expectations for his creation. He said to Moses, remember that he was um, long-suffering, gracious, and merciful, ready to forgive, yet by no means would he allow the guilty to go unpunished. God is going to punish our sins and holds us personally accountable for our actions, our words, and even our thoughts, the scripture tells us. That makes him just. Now, this generation that we're celebrating today, these high school graduates grew up in an atmosphere where the word justice was ever on their lips. Uh, Every generation thinks the generation before them was unjust, right? And and so we did that to our parents, and they surely did it to their parents. Um, But what is justice? Justice is always doing what is right and appropriate as regards sin and wrongdoing. And the only entity in the universe who always does what is just and right and holy is the God that has revealed himself in the Bible. And he is holy, which means he's different and separate than us. So the answer to the question we saw last week to whom are we accountable, is God. But I think we need to add to that the God who reveals himself in the Bible. Because human beings have a concept in their mind of who God is. You ask the average person on the street, do you believe in God? Even to this day, the vast majority would say yes. But what God do they believe in? The God who is revealed in the Bible or the God of their imagination, as we'll see later on today. So we're to the second question today, which is, How did the world get in such a mess? Another way of saying it is, is what is man's essential problem or the essential problem of humanity? Again, if you ask the man on the street, sir, what do you believe the essential problem of humanity is? You'll get a variety of answers. Some popular ones I've noticed recently are the economy. I've lost 20% in my 401k. That's his most pressing moment at the the moment. Um, The climate, some would say. We've got to do something about the temperature. 
Others would say it's the existential threat of nuclear proliferation, nuclear war. Um, those are popular answers, and you'll hear others. I have a very large collection of old sermons in my office from great preachers from hundreds of years. Uh, some are in written form, some are audio. I like to read them, I like to listen to them. Uh, one of the things I enjoy about these old sermons is that the sermon illustrations date them very well. Uh, for example, I was listening to an old sermon just this week, and the speaker began his message with a comment on President Carter. And so I knew immediately that the sermon was preached somewhere between 1976 and, and 1980, which piqued my interest, honestly, because those were my wheelhouse years. <laughs> Roger Staubach was the quarterback for the Cowboys. They were going to Super Bowls. Kenny Rogers was on the radio and I was batting cleanup for my t-ball team. So I love those years, <laughs> 1976 to 1980, but not everyone did as I have studied history. They were some hard years for a lot of people. I do remember eavesdropping on the conversations of adults during that time. And they seemed to have three major problems back then in the 70s. One was high gas prices. One was rising inflation and the other was the threat of Russia in Europe. Well, thankfully, in the 45 years that's intervened since the 70s, we've solved all those pesky problems. <laughs> no, we have not. More importantly, we've not solved man's fundamental need, which is to be made right with a holy God. Man has been equally unsuccessful in dressing some of his secondary problems, let alone his primary problem. So what is the primary problem? What is, if we could distill it down to one problem, why is the world in such a mess? Well, the answer is found in our text today. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. Listen. Behold, Isaiah writes, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. May the Lord add his blessing, the reading and hearing of his word. What is humanity's problem? That is, what does Isaiah have to say here? Well, he starts with not addressing the problem directly. He begins by saying, well, here's what the problem is not. So I'd like to do that as well. Now, Isaiah was, in this context, actually addressing these words to his own people, the Jews, the nation of Israel. They had been unfaithful to God. They had not kept their covenant with him, although he had been faithful in every area. They were about to be judged by God for their faithlessness, and they're going to be taken away into captivity. Now, we need to always be very careful. You'll hear me say this many times, taking verses from the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, out of context and try to fit them into our modern context. But in this case, I think it's appropriate because these verses, as you compare them to the rest of the Bible, speak of not just the problem of Israel, not just the problem of Isaiah's day, but to the universal essential problem of all humanity in every epoch of history. In other words, Israel's problem is the same problem of all humanity. But before we address that problem, let's clearly address what is not. Man's essential problem, Isaiah says, is not God. <laughs> we have pain and crime and disease and death and child abuse, not because God is evil, or even that God is helpless to stop it. He says his hand is not so short that it cannot save, or his ear so dull that it cannot hear. 
Now, obviously, this is a literary device Isaiah is using called anthropomorphism. That is using human traits and characteristics to describe something that is not human. The Bible says God is not human. God is spirit. He's not like us, but because God is merciful and kind, he allows humans to describe him in human-like terms because that's all we know. As Paul says, I has not seen or ear heard. We, we've not been to heaven. We don't have a vocabulary of the supernatural, so we have to use natural vocabulary. So we ascribe to God eyes and ears and toes and feet. But God is essentially spirit, but he allows this to help us understand what he's like. The point is that the problem with humanity is not some shortcoming of God. And this is something you hear all the time as an argument from biblical cynics. They say, well, you Christians say that God is all good. Would we all agree with that, that God is good? I hope so. Would you agree that God is revealed in the Bible as all-powerful? Yes. So they say, okay, gotcha. So if God is all good, why would he allow pain and suffering in the world? And if all, God is all-powerful, why would he not stop all pain and suffering and sin? So he's either one or the other Christian. He's either all-powerful or he's all-good, but he's not both. Now, that's wrong on its face, as we'll see. But really what it gets to is what man has been doing for thousands of years. That is deflecting blame from the real culprit himself and putting it upon God. You'll notice that when cynics speak of God's nature in the Bible, they take absolutely no responsibility for the evil that's in the world and they put it all upon God. It's his fault. Either he caused it or he refuses to stop it. Now, does that sound familiar to you? this blame game and finger pointing. It likely does if you had children, um, but it didn't start in your household. It started much earlier than that in the Garden of Eden. So let's turn back to the front of our Bible to the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, chapter three. And just to give you a quick synopsis of what happened in chapters one and two, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And for six literal days, he created plants and animals and marine life. And on the sixth day, he created his highest creature, man, said it's not good for him to be alone. And so he created out of Adam's side a woman, a helpmate for Adam. And he gave them one rule in the midst of his perfect creation, not to eat of a particular tree that he placed in the midst of the garden. But you know the rest of the story. Satan tempted Eve and she ate and she gave to her husband Adam and he ate and their eyes were open. And here's what happens next according to Genesis chapter 3 verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? And by the way, by the way, God is not asking these questions out of ignorance. He knows exactly what's going on. Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me. So he's blaming the woman, but really he's blaming God. You're the one that gave me the woman. She gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. And then the Lord, of course, curses the serpent, the woman, the man, and even the earth itself. They're like children standing before a broken vase in the living room. 
with their fingers pointed at each other. So if the problem is not God, and Isaiah says God's arm is not short nor is it at all, then what is the problem? We've seen what it's not. It's not God. What is the problem? Verse 2, but your iniquities, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. This word but is a, a conjunction. It's a transition word. It means rather, instead. It's not what you think. It's something else. Your iniquities, your sin, your disobedience. We saw three different words for sin last week in the Hebrew. One means to twist and change. That's what we do with God's commands. We pretend we obey them, but we change them just a little bit to suit our needs. One is just open rebellion. We know what you've said, God, we don't care. A third word, the one we see in Romans 3.23, is that we fall short. God sets the standard and we don't meet it. And all of us fall into that category. So what is man's essential problem? I told the senior class that we're in the first service that next year a lot of you are going to be freshmen in college and you're going to take psychology 101 and within the first two weeks your professor is going to say why is the world in such a mess and I want every one of you to raise your hand we know the answer and then when he says what's the answer I want you to point right at him or her and to every one of your classmates and then to yourself because the answer to the question what is man's essential problem is man specifically man's sin. Did you note what happened in the Garden of Eden in chapter 3? God did everything he possibly could do. He created a perfect environment. He set man over it. He gave him very clear rule, one rule, which he violated, made it crystal clear what his ex, uh, expectations were, and made crystal clear what the punishment for violating that rule would be. And yet man, in his hubris, sinned anyway. But before he did, God and man were enjoying perfect fellowship. There was no barrier, in other words, between God and man. But the moment they sinned, their eyes were open. They saw they were naked. And what I believe that means is they saw that they were not like God. He's holy. And so they hid themselves out of fear from God's presence because they knew what he was going to say to them was true. He's holy and they're not. Worse, he knew it. So what must a holy God who can't look upon sin, do with that which is stained by sin. He must remove himself from it. He cast them out, Genesis 3, 24. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed a cherubim, that's a powerful angel, and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So as we've been seeing, as Dr. Ford said from our study of Romans since August, Man's essential problem is that he's separated from his creator God by his own sin. In two ways. One, by virtue of his connection to our first parents, Adam. We are in Adam, Paul says. That is, as David said in the Old Testament, in sin was I conceived by virtue of our family pedigree. Because Adam was guilty, he has imputed that sin down into every generation. But as soon as we are morally culpable, we sin volitionally. That's why we say here we are sinners by birth, by virtue of our ancestors, but we're also sinners by choice. That's what Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. It's not just that we were a victim of being a human. We sin volitionally. We violate God's commandments. 
And that leads us to the third question. Question one, how did the world get in such a mess? Well, it's not because of God's shortcoming. So what it's not. Um, then what is it? It's ourselves. It's our own sins, our own fault. And then the third question I'd like us to look at is one that most people never get to. They stop short of this, which is, what does it matter? They don't stop to think deeply enough of the consequences of the answer to the first two questions, but they should. What does it matter that man's problem is his own sin? If that's the way things are, we can't do anything about it. You keep saying that, Pastor. Let's just get the most out of life, which is the philosophy of the Epicureans, right? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's the philosophy of so many people in our own culture, live it up, party it up, sin as much as we can because we'll soon be dead and gone, forgotten about. Well, this is uh, a problem that's been going on since Adam and Eve were shown the door. This is what humanity has been doing, trying to figure out his way back into the garden through pleasure. How has that gone for humanity? Well, I'd say as a student of history, not very well. Do you know how long it took man in his genius to go from eating a forbidden fruit to committing murder? Exactly one chapter. Chapter three, man eats of the fruit and is cursed. Chapter four, a brother kills his brother. And see, what we've been taught, many of us who grew up going to, to school, is that man is growing upward and better, right? Each generation, man is advancing technologically and socially. Uh, until it come, came to the 16 and 1700s, what historians call the age of enlightenment. Man emerges from the dark ages and now he's enlightened intellectually. There are advancements in technology and science. Man starts to understand the principles of nature like gravity and Physics, and the thought is, okay, now that we've figured it out, how this universe functions, then it won't be very long at all until we'll solve all of our own problems. And it's been 300 years since the age of enlightenment, and do you know what man does in every century? He becomes a more sophisticated killer. That's what man does. Do you know what the most bloody century in human history was? the 20th, the same century that most adults in this room who are looking at me were born, where we were told it's the greatest generation that ever lived, and we put a man on the moon, and we solved polio, and I'm glad for all of those things, don't discount them at all, but that same century, we killed one another at a rate the world has never seen. And guess what? Now it's the 21st century, and we're 22 years on it, and most statisticians say we're going to outstrip the 20th in killing each other. That's how man has solved his own problem. He's become a more sophisticated sinner. So man can't and has not figured out how to solve his essential problem that he's separated from God. And so what does he do? Well, one, he pretends there is no God. The Bible calls that person a fool. Or else... He creates a God in his own mind that he can get along with. Genesis says that God created man in his own image, and man's been trying to return the favor ever since, right? 
That's what Romans 1 says. Let's turn there. We started here back in August in Romans 1, and Paul, before he gets to justification by faith, he establishes a fundamental truth that man is not evolving upward and better, that man is in a constant tailspin, socially, morally, and every other way, and it will end in his own destruction. And this is how he summarizes man and his relationship with God. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God, that's his constant anger, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's very important because most people you and I know think there should be a hell. They think it, God should judge. They think Adolf Hitler ought to be there. They think Charles Manson ought to be there. They think their bully from high school ought to be there. But they don't think they ought to be there. Because man is extremely biased towards himself. He can point out the failures of others. But if it comes to his own shortcomings, he's very defensive. Well, I might not be perfect, but my heart is right. You ever heard people say that? My intentions were pure. The Bible says, no, they weren't. Your foolish heart is darkened, the Bible says. The heart of man, the Bible says, is desperately wicked, and who could ever hope to even comprehend the depths of its depravity? And yet man makes excuses and points to others and even to heaven and says, it's your fault, God. But we're trying to answer the question in this third point of why it even matters. And, and I want to state for the record, I believe it does matter. In fact, I think it means more than anything else in the world. And here's why. Number one, because man is totally incapable of solving his own problem. That he's separated from God. He can't do it through philosophy. He can't through, do it through technology. He can't do it through science. He can't do it through diplomacy. He's proven that time and time again. And why is that? Come close and I'll tell you. It's because philosophers, technicians... Scientists and diplomats have the same fundamental problem as this country preacher you're looking at has. We are sinners ourselves. We fall short. We're in no position to get ourselves out of this situation. Therefore, we must look to one outside of us. We are among those who fall short of the glory of God. We can't ever hope to dig ourselves out of this hole. But as I told the graduates this morning, cheer up. It gets worse. <laughs> it's real bad in Hebrews 9.27 after it uh, tells us how sinful we are. Then it says we're going to die. It's appointed to every man wants to die. Not period. Not exclamation point. But what? Comma. And then comes the judgment. See, don't forget we're accountable to God. And you may skate through this life 70, 80, 90, even 100 years and not feel that. But one day you're going to die. We looked at Revelation last week to the great white throne of judgment. Remember what's going to happen to every person? They're going to stand alone before God. Just as Adam stood before God. And as Eve stood before God. As the serpent stood before God. And Scripture says the books, plural, are going to be opened. The books of our lives. I take that to mean every Thought we've ever thought, every word we've ever spoken, every deed we've ever done is going to be laid bare. And you know what? We're all going to be declared guilty. Our mouths are going to be stopped. 
We won't be able to point at anyone. We're the only ones there. God is the judge. We can't point and blame it on him. It's our problem. So it matters, the answer to the question, what is man's essential problem? Uh, it matters because our eternal souls are the most valuable and precious thing in the world. The Bible asks rhetorically, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? It matters, and, and let me be blunt, it matters because you and I will spend eternity either in heaven or hell. And our friends, neighbors, and loved ones will spend eternity either in heaven or hell. Now, the, the third question in this series is, what has God done about our problem? <laughs> We've established, number one, who holds us accountable, the God revealed in the Bible. Number two, what is man's essential problem, or why is the world in such a mess? Ourselves. Third question we'll see next week is what has God done about it? But I can't take the chance that you will be here next week, so I'm going to tell you today. Remember, God described himself in Exodus 34 as gracious and merciful and slow to anger and ready to forgive. And everyone loves that description of God. But there's also a comma in that verse. There's also a conjunction and a transition word in that verse. Yes, God is patient, merciful, slow to anger, ready to forgive, comma, yet, he says, I will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God is just, which means he must punish all sin. What does he say in Romans 1.18? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, not just that which you think is particularly heinous, not just your neighbor's sin, but your sin he must punish. So what did God do about your problem? Here it is. He sent Jesus to take the punishment for all who would believe on him. Substitutionary atonement. Jesus came into the world, dear friends, not to just set a good example of how we ought to live and treat one another. He came in the world not just to show that God loves us. He came in the world to live a perfect life so that he could go to the cross sinless, that he would be qualified to die in our place on the cross. And he did. And he says, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There's an invitation to all who would trust in him, not just to believe the historical facts around the gospel, but to put your faith and trust in Jesus. And to trust in Jesus is you have to embrace all he is and all he's done. And to embrace Jesus and all he is and all he's done, you got to let go of what you're clinging to. And for a lot of people, it's this claim without any evidence that they don't need God that they're okay by themselves. They're, they're the, their own God. Remember I said people are going to worship something? And for a lot of people, it's the man in the mirror. And so if the man in the mirror is the highest thing they can think of, then their problems must be those people. And so they point, just as Adam and Eve did, to each other. And yet what the mirror reveals, the mirror of God's law, is that we're guilty. Every one of us. We all fall short. No one is accepted. And yet God has intervened into human history through the person and work in Jesus. And yes, we're guilty by virtue of our connection to our first father, Adam. But the Bible describes Jesus as a new and better Adam. And just as guilt was imputed through Adam to us today, 
Christ's righteousness is imputed at the cross to all who will believe. What about you? Are you believing in Jesus? Are you believing in something else? No matter what that something else is, if it's not Jesus, it's going to fall short. On the day of judgment that is surely coming, when the books are opened and every sin we've ever done are revealed, our only hope that they will not to negotiate, not to say that's not so, but just to agree with God's assessment of us and say, Father, you know, that's exactly right. I did all of those things. I agree that I'm not worthy of heaven, comma. <laughs> but Jesus died for me. And I put my faith and trust in him. And you say you're a merciful and, and a loving God and ready to forgive. And I believed that. And I heard a gospel message one day that said, if I would repent of sins and believe on Jesus, you'd forgive me and I'll be saved. And I did that. And therefore, I'm forgiven. Amen? Romans 8, 1. Therefore, as a result of what Christ has done and our faith in him, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't have to fear the wrath of God because our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Every one of us who believes. What about you? Who are we accountable to? The God of the Bible. What's man's essential problem? What's my essential problem? Myself, my own sin and guilt. What's God done about it? He sent Jesus to die in my place on the cross. How do I get in on that? By faith alone. Not by faith plus works. Not by faith plus self-reformation. But coming to him on his terms, on bended knee and say, Lord, forgive me. I'm a sinner. I'm sorry. Confess everything you say about me is true. Would you based on the blood of Jesus poured out on my behalf, cleanse me of all unrighteousness. Do you know what his promise is? If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us and keep on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. That's the answer to life's essential problem. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for sinners such as us. Father, it's only good news, as I often say, unless it's said against a black backdrop of bad news that we're guilty. You're just. You must punish sin. And if we got what we deserve, none of us have a hope of heaven. But you're merciful, kind. You intervened in human history and you sent Jesus at just the right time. And he went voluntarily and laid down his sinless life on the cross promise of scripture is whoever would call upon his name would be saved. Lord, I pray for someone in this room who knows you not. Would your spirit convict them of personal sin and guilt today? Your holiness and judgment to come. Father, would you draw them and grant them repentance and faith? Would we welcome them even as we have this young lady today into Christian fellowship as a brother or sister in Christ. Thank you that you're still saving sinners. Lord, would you do it multiplied times over in this community, in this state and nation for your own honor and glory. We'll count it revival. We'll count it answer to our prayers when we see it happening. We'll give you thanks in advance in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. 
To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org. Thank you.